Wow. Here I am, 8,000 miles from home. That's kind of weird. And I don't speak like a normal American. You might notice that. My voice is very southern, y'all. <laughs> so, but that's okay. That doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means you think a little bit slower than everybody else. So that's okay. It means you get to think slower and harder. Is this my water? Awesome. That's great, because I'll need that in a minute. Okay. Well, well, I have seen Nairobi tonight, because Air Uber took us through every back road <laughs> between here and downtown Nairobi. So I'm sorry that we're late, but I'm going to try to get through this presentation <clears throat> in a way that doesn't seem rushed so we can think about it, because this is a really big deal, especially for me. Um, you heard my introduction. Some of the things that you didn't hear in the introduction, you heard all the good things. I mean, I used to be an atheist. I used to be very um, left-wing. I think is the term that you would use here. We would call it um, liberal or Democrat or blue or left side of the aisle in America. <clears throat> and so I used to be very pro-LBGTQ. And so I used to be for gay rights. And after I became a Christian and gave up my atheism and gave up the commitments that went along with my atheism, um, God opened up my heart and showed me that this is not helping people just by accepting them. So <clears throat> um, I'm here today not as an American and not as an international speaker, but as somebody who is representing the kingdom of God. Um, for me, the kingdom of God really doesn't matter where you come from or what part of the world you're from. We're all part of the same family as a Christian. And that's what I hope to speak to tonight. I'm speaking to you not so much as an American but as your brother in Christ. And I'm very appreciative of this opportunity, and I don't take it lightly. So thank you for having me tonight. I just turned this microphone off. So Acts 17 says, for one, From one man he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth, determining their set times and fixed limits of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope around for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. That scripture tells me, we're all part of one big family. Amen? Amen? Oh, I'm supposed to say, wait a minute. If you're preaching in Africa, you're supposed to start with praise the Lord. Amen. Okay, sorry. I forgot all about that. My bad. I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning too. You know? So the question I want to address tonight, <clears throat> I'm going to start this way. You guys are college students, so I'm sure you like something that's going to have an order to it, right? So I'm not just going to stand up here and just go off on this subject. I want to show you how we got there in the West. How did we get to the place that we are with LBGTQ? How, how did we get to the place from Christian moral values to a place where children, if a children tells their high school teacher that they're gay, that they're not allowed, the high school teacher is not allowed to tell the parents. It's getting very extreme in our country. And so... <clears throat> When we study this deeply, as, as um, I was introduced, I have a master's degree in cultural apologetics from Houston Christian University. I'm very indebted to a couple of scholars at that university in thinking of this subject. One of them is Professor Peer, uh, Nancy Piercy. Those of you that are up on apologetics, she's a female apologist in um, the United States. And another one that's a little lesser known, but a very sharp thinker named Dr. Robert Gagnon. And if anybody is interested in reading more about this subject, those are two people that I would point you to. Um, Nancy Piercy really did a fine job of 
pointing out these issues, and I was very, very privileged to be able to sit under her as a student. So, how many of you have heard of apologetics before? Is this pretty, pretty big thing here? Just show, raise your hand, I'm sorry. Raise your hand if you've heard of apologetics. Okay, good, so I don't have to explain that. You'd be surprised how many people in America don't really under, like, it's not even a big deal in America right now yet. Um, so sometimes I find myself standing in front of audiences explaining what apologetics is. And if you haven't heard that term before tonight, it's a real simple definition. It means that you're making a defense for something. So when you say, I'm a Christian apologist, that means that I'm a Christian defending what Christians believe. Okay, so that's what I'm going to try to do here tonight. So if you thought about the homosexual revolution you might think, well, where did this come from? Maybe Sigmund Freud? That's true, and we'll get there a little bit. Um, maybe Alfred Kinsey, who really began the sexual revolution in the 1960s. His ideas really flourished in the 1960s in America during the hippie age and all of that stuff. But really, you have to go all the way back to this guy, believe it or not, in the scientific revolution in the West. You go all the way back to, who knows who this is, by the way? Somebody said it over here. Isaac Newton, right? Now, I'm not, now listen, I'm not a scientist or anything. You guys probably are better scientists than I am since you're at a technical university. And I'm not an expert in this guy. But it was his ideas that, um, um, okay, thank you. Um, it was his ideas that really projected the way people think about individualism in the West. And you wouldn't have the problem that we have in the West without a very radical individualism, which is very different than the African context. Most of the African contexts do not think, you guys think more of in a community way. In America, it's very much like me versus the world. It's very individualistic. So um, with the scientific revolution, Isaac Newton revived this Epicurean atomism and the philosophy, and, and it really, um, inspired a lot of the philosophies that you saw come through the Enlightenment. So what that meant is, as far as atomism, it's like you see all these little individual atoms that make up the universe, right? So maybe there's all kinds of individual people that make up communities, and maybe the individual identity is much more important than the community identity. And so that's what people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the, in the in French Enlightenment era, era, he would say each citizen would then be completely independent of all his fellow men and absolutely dependent on the state. You see that shift there, that minor shift? And these guys in the scientific revolution really inspired the guys in the um, French Enlightenment era. And of course, <clears throat> this guy is also very important. Doesn't he look cool, by the way? I wish I had hair like that, man. That's awesome. So, <laughs> for Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he was famous for saying, man is born free and everywhere is in chains. Have you guys heard that quote before? Yeah, so he was really, he, for Jean-Jacques Rousseau, his religion was not Christianity, was it? His religion was based really around the state. He saw the state. He saw government as a means for freedom, which inspired wonderful um, revolutionary leaders like Pol Pot in Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge. He was very inspired by Rousseau's ideas, and thus he went back to his country and killed millions of people because he wanted to make sure that the race was cleansed and all kinds of other crazy things. So 
you know, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. I'm just trying to help you see the evolutionary timeline, if you will, of how we got to where we are in the West. So in Rousseau's worldview, you see creation, which is a little bit different than what we would see, a lot different than what we would see as creation being from God himself. And with Rousseau, it was this state of nature, this idea that, that, that creation um, is just, it's perfect when it's untouched by man. And so human nature for him is autonomous. And of course, we know from the Bible, when man was created, God immediately created a woman. And why is that? I mean, why is that, guys? We're just not complete without a woman, are we? Sorry. Hi, girls. <laughs> How are you doing? You're in college. You're supposed to be finding a spouse right now. You know that, right? That's part of this whole plan that your parents paid for you to go here. So... <laughs> So, yeah, I can say for myself, whenever I, find, whenever I found Tabitha, my wife, she really did a lot to complete my life, and especially in Christianity. Now, before I became a Christian, I didn't care if I had a wife. really didn't matter to me. But there was something about how God changed my heart, and I didn't fully understand it at that time. But I understood that Tab, in a way, she, com she completed me. And now, after nine years of marriage, I really don't know what life would even look like without her. It would be just very strange. But for Rousseau, it was autonomy. It was all about individualism. And then, of course, the fall, instead of being um, sin, the fall was civilization itself, which meant that if man was civilized, so big cities like Nairobi, for instance, he would see that as a bad thing. This is not progress. You guys are cutting down the trees. You're destroying the environment. It's better for man to go out and interact with this original state of nature. And that's how we find our true self. So, of course, um, salvation, the savior for Rousseau, was again the state. So the state needs to step in and be the savior for mankind. So it's a different kind of Christianity. So <clears throat> what happened in the West is we replaced covenantal relationships like you, like you would see. So marriage is, for instance, not man's design. Marriage is God's design. Amen? And so if marriage is God's design, then the state shouldn't have really any... Let there be light. Hallelujah. There we go. <laughs> then the state shouldn't... Um, the state doesn't have that kind of authority. Well, that's not what the state's doing anymore. Not in the West. Because... The state believes, or I'm sorry, the West has fully embraced this idea of social contract theory. Say social contract theory. Say that. Okay. I've got to make sure you guys aren't sleeping yet. So with social contract theory, what we're seeing with that is that the state can now, since they're the savior, create the standards for what we see in things like marriage. So if the state creates a contract for marriage, the state can also create a contract for divorce. And it can also design what kind of marriage is trustworthy or what is, what is um, you know, what the laws of the state define marriage as is what ultimately marriage is defined as, which is why we have now gay marriage in the United States. Because it's not based upon covenant, it's based upon social contracts. So when you mix all of this stuff up and then this guy comes along, Darwin... As Nancy Piercy rightly points out in her book, Love Thy Body, 
She says, Darwin could not deny that nature appears to be designed, but having embraced the philosophy of materialism, he wanted to reduce that appearance to an illusion. So here you have Darwin that is in denial of the design and nature because he was a smart guy. I mean, he wasn't stupid. I don't agree with his ideas, but he certainly wasn't an idiot. And he is seeing these things in nature and saying, well, there appears to be a design. And if you look at atheists today like Richard Dawkins, they're still saying things like that. There's this appearance, this illusion of design. But we know because of evolutionary biology, there's really no design. It's all just a bunch of chance. You know, it's like... That's called cognitive dissonance, isn't it? That's knowing that one thing is true, but then believing that it's not true at the same time. So <clears throat> when you throw Darwin into that, he reduced everybody down into what? An animal. An animal, which is very important. So hold on to that. So if we're just evolved from apes, which honestly, I love Kenya. I love Nairobi, but I've been here twice. Um... When you fly in, how many of you have flown into, I think it's the international terminal. When you fly in, you have to go through customs. And then there's that real tall statue of the three face masks. And when you first see it's wooden, wood carvings, huge, it's taller, it's like that tall. Really pretty. And then you turn the corner, and on the corner, there's the Cradle of Civilization display. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Where it shows Darwin and Lucy, and it's talking about this, this somewhat of a, pri almost like pride in evolution that, somehow Kenya would be part of the cradle of civilization. But I'd want to caution, I would want to caution any country in really embracing this kind of idea. Because when evolutionary biology took hold in America, you started seeing a lot of things change. You started seeing people like Margaret Sanger springing up and saying, listen, if it's all about just the survival of the fittest, then we need, to get rid of, we need to get rid of the lesser races like Darwin talked about. We need to start putting abortion clinics in black neighborhoods. And it was Darwinism that inspired her to do that. And so today, the, the amount of abortions in the black races in America versus the white races, it's astronomically higher. Astronomically higher. And so you have to, whenever... whenever you embrace evolution, one of the things you have to commit to is we are just hyper-evolved animals. And we're really no different. We're really not much different than a monkey or in some stretches in America now, cats and dogs. Cats and dogs can sometimes have more rights than humans. So you have to be careful about this. These ideas have definite consequences. And so when you mix these things with social contract theory and Darwinism, both together, and you throw Karl Marx into it that says that, well, we're all just some sort of, um, you know, that things are just part of this social construct. <clears throat> and as um, one of his biographers pointed out here, what we think are facts are really social constructs, really cultural constructs, including the biological facts about sex. As Butler writes, this construct called sex is as culturally constructed as what? Gender. So if gender is just a cultural construct and man's making the laws now, man's making the rules now, then philosophically we don't have to be committed to biology anymore. Philosophically we can say, I mean, if I stood up here and, said, and introduced myself and said, Hi, I'm a woman. A couple of you giggled, but that was a bad joke. If I said that, <laughs> you guys would be like, What? Like, dude, you're like half bald. How are you, you know, you're an ugly woman. But 
But we can giggle about that, but in America, if I made that joke in America, they might even shut my speech down and kick me off campus immediately, and I could lose my job. That's where, we've, that's where we are now. And a lot of that has to do with Marxism and how critical theory has trickled into our, our um, school programs, and it's causing people to basically rethink everything that anybody's ever thought to be true. And it's really scary. It's really scary, and as somebody who used to embrace those ideas wholeheartedly 13 years ago, I would have been a critical theorist, Marxist, atheist. That's where I was. I was pro-LBGTQ, I was pro-abortion, I was pro-all of that. Looking back at that, I see that it does not, it's not helping our society whatsoever. It's causing a lot of hatred for no reason. People are hating each other for reasons that weren't even a big deal four years ago. But especially during COVID, it got even worse. So when you mix all this stuff together and then this new discipline starts coming on the scene and this guy shows up, <clears throat> Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud, when he was talking about um, his, whole, his whole philosophy, his whole psychology was based around sexual things. He, first, he was the first one to posit this idea in psychology that some of our biggest issues come from um, whether or not we were sexually attracted to our mother at a young age and things like that. And you know what? In America, this has got to the place where people don't even question these ideas anymore. They just accept it and go on in their classrooms. Like, oh yeah, we're all sexually attracted to our moms when we were a kid. That makes sense. When's the test, professor? <laughs> it's like, you know, one of the biggest failures in the education system in America is that we have quit teaching people how to think. We teach them what to think. And there's a big difference between that. You have to learn how to process ideas. You have to learn how to think through things. And Christians, let me tell you something. You might not think this is a very big deal right now. You might think this is just, just now showing up on the scene. But listen to me. We did not see this coming in the United States. There's always been gay people around. There's always, I had gay friends from a very young age. I mean, I used to hang out with gay people all the time, and I still do. But we never saw it to be, we never thought it would be a cultural revolution. Nobody saw that coming, not even the gay people. <laughs> Nobody saw it coming. Believe me. And so when you mix these things, you mix all this stuff together, and now we're moving into the 20th century, and then how many people's heard of this guy, Alfred Kinsey? Anybody heard of that? Any psych majors in here? Yeah, so Alfred Kinsey, they made a movie about him with um, Liam Neeson. Any Star Wars fans in here? No? Is that a Western thing? Okay, sorry. But yeah, anyway, he was a Jedi, Qui-Gon Jinn. Anyway, okay, I'm a nerd. I'm sorry. That's just where I'm at. So... But anyway, yeah, very famous movie. I think it was called Let's Talk About Sex in the early 2000s. But that's what this guy was all about. He was a psychiatrist, he was, and he produced many books on this idea. And he did some very unethical um, approaches to his, to his study. You know, and it was just awful. So he, but he was the guy. This guy right here started the sexual revolution. What did he have in common with everybody else? Well, first of all, he didn't believe in God. Neither did Sigmund Freud, neither did Karl Marx. You can make some sort of case that Charles Darwin had some idea of God, but he really wasn't a Christian, if you look at his worldview. Neither did John Jacques Rousseau. None of them believed in God. None of them did. Also, post-Darwin, all of these guys were Darwinists. 
And Kinsey took it to another level. He said, sex is a normal biological function, acceptable in whatever form it is manifested. Now, this was in the 1950s in the United States. This wasn't five years ago. This was in the 1950s. And so you fast forward to my era. Now, I was born in 1984, and one of the first presidents that I really remember was this guy, Bill Clinton. I was pretty much raised during the Clinton era. He spent four, eight years as a, as, as a president. He was a liberal, Democrat, left-wing. Now, believe it or not, the left wing has gotten so radical in the United States, he would be considered a, considered a moderate. <laughs> He's not, he wouldn't even be really a strong Democrat. But in America right now, does anybody know what month it is in America right now? It's the month of June. No, I'm just kidding. Like, what? <laughs> anybody know what month it is in America right now? It's Pride Month. Pride Month is not a new idea. It's actually a... 20 plus year old idea and it was this guy Bill Clinton they used to call him uh, you might know his nickname Slick Willie yeah that's a fun nickname anyway so this guy he initiated Pride Month and in the very document that initiated Pride Month he used this language that you see on the screen but we cannot achieve true tolerance merely through legislation we must change hearts and minds as well and if you followed American politics at all in the last 20 years, this idea of hearts and minds keeps coming up all the time. It's a very popular talking point. We've got to change our hearts and our minds. And now it's got to the place that it's like, well, wait a minute. You don't, you're, you're not in full agreement with Pride Month? And you've not accepted this with your heart and mind? Well, you must be stupid. See how that works? Well, you must be hateful. You must be a bigot. You must be a Christian. And that's where we are. And then there was this guy. I actually worked on Barack Obama's campaign in 2008. I was a volunteer with him and, a, and an intern under somebody else. Um, Bruce Lunsford, you probably don't know that name, but I'm sure you know who Barack Obama is. <clears throat> he had a Kenyan father, I believe. Many Americans think that he was born in Kenya now, but which disqualified his presidency if he was, but I doubt that's the case. But it's a popular conspiracy theory if you're not aware of that. Um, <laughs> Barack Obama, or he ran under a one-word campaign. Anybody know what that is? What was it? I'm not, I'm not understanding that word. Please don't speak in Swahili to me. I don't <laughs> what is it? No, not yes we can. Change. But change what? Nobody thought to ask that question. See, my generation was very, very, very broken. I'm part of the 9-11 generation. When the Twin Towers got hit by Osama bin Laden, I was a senior in high school. Most of my buddies went off to war. I mean, it was... People were so sick of what was going on under the Bush administration. They were basically like, anything's better. And so the Democratic Party understood this. And they put this very ambiguous campaign out there that said, change. We need change. Change to what? Change. You don't think things are just crap right now? Well, you need to change, don't you? Yeah, but what are you changing to? <laughs> Anything's better than this. Well, I agree. I'm going to vote. 
And that's literally how he got elected. The first four years, he said this, What I believe in my faith is that a man and a woman, when they get married, are performing something before God, and it's not simply the two persons who are meeting. Amen. I totally agree with that. This is what happens in America, though. If you don't understand the American political system, it's stupid, but, <laughs> the, um, but what we have there is a two-term presidency. Uh, no president can serve more than two terms. So what typically happens is the first four years, they'll say whatever they need to say to get elected. And then if they do a good enough job, the American people vote them in for the second, two, second four years. And the second four years, they just go off the rails and do all kinds of crazy stuff. So watch how his rhetoric changed in the second four years. When we think about our faith, the thing at root that we think about is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, but it's also the golden rule, you know? Treat others the way you'd want to be treated. And he said this in response to gay marriage. And then he was the president that was presiding over the Obergefell decision. Who knows what the Obergefell decision is? The Obergefell decision was a Supreme Court decision that said that a man and a man can get married now, and the government would recognize it. And this was a big celebration for the Democrats, big celebration. All the left-wing people just went crazy. Obama has become the hero of the left-wing people, and that's why his vice president, Joe Biden, just got elected, even though he's like 80 years old and can barely talk. <laughs> So, so, so <clears throat> right now you have a divided country in the United States, and I get asked a lot when I come into different countries and talk about these cultural issues, how did America get there? Well, now you see it. These things have been festering for a long time. There's already a lot of ideas in the Kenyan culture. I tell people all the time, Nairobi feels like a western city to me. It really does. It feels like Houston, Texas almost. I mean, it's the same kind of restaurants, same kind of crazy driving and everything. It's just, it's, but these things are already, these seeds are already being planted in Kenyan culture. What little bit of research I've done, and I'm by no means an expert, I've already seen that there is a time bomb ticking here. And what your president did, and I've heard two things. I've heard the president oversaw what the Supreme Court decided in February here, and I've heard that, but also, to be fair to your president, he also backtracked and said, but we're not going to recognize gay marriage here. Well, you know what I say to your president, and I mean no disrespect to this, good luck. Because once this starts, it doesn't stop. And Western influence is going to come in here, if they're already doing it, they're going to start bringing, well, I think the, didn't, wasn't, now correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't fully understand the whole legal language, and I was studying to be a lawyer, so I'm very careful about language. But from what I understand about NGOs in, this, in Kenya is that now homosexual clubs can organize. And what happens when people organize is they get powerful. And what happens when they start to get a little bit of traction is these Western people, like the Alliance for Defending Freedom, which defends everything but Christianity, starts coming in here and giving them money to get this agenda through. And then people will get elected. And then those people are going to go into Parliament. And then Parliament's going to pass laws. And all it takes is something like, okay, now, now gay people can get married. Then it's an explosion. And it doesn't stop. Then all of a sudden, all the things that we see as perverted becomes okay. 
becomes okay. And it's very sad. And this is where we are in America. I work in college campuses. I work at a Christian university. And one of my students, I've had in the last, in the last year since fall semester, <clears throat> I've had three different students that I minister to walk up to me and say they're struggling with their sexuality, which means they're struggling with being gay. In a Christian college, not a secular college. And then when I start talking to them about the biblical definition of what we believe as Christians, they get offended. And I'm not mean. I'm gentle. I mean, I want you to believe that. I'm not one of those people that stands up with a megaphone and says, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. That's the biggest mistake that the church made in the United States is they started talking to people that way and then those people never saw a home in the church. They saw a home in the psychiatrist's office. They saw a home in the doctor's office when they started getting gender reassignment surgery. Women were cutting off their breasts. Men were cutting off their sexual organs and, and supposedly becoming women, forgetting that biology will never allow them to do that. But biology didn't matter anymore, did it? What mattered is what I believe about myself is what's most important. Now, what kind of craziness are we seeing now? Craziness like furries. Anybody heard of furries? Well, if we're all just animals, <clears throat> right? I mean, we're all just animals. That's what Darwin said. That's what's been taught in Western universities for 150 years, 170 years. So if we're all just animals, <clears throat> well, and biology doesn't really matter anymore, and truth is no longer absolute, and I'm, I am whatever I feel, well, I feel like a cat, You laugh, but I have a student that came out of this. And what happens when they feel... I'm not trying to be perverted, and I know it's a mixed crowd, and I'm very cautious about how I talk about this, but give me a little bit of uh, slack. I am an American, so this stuff is just like in front of us all the time. So I'll talk about it pretty freely. But what this means is these people dress up like cats and dogs and then have sexual fetish, fetishes based on that. They say, I feel like a cat. I feel like a dog. So I'm going to have sex like a cat or a dog in full costume, barking and meowing and all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> and you think this is crazy. <clears throat> I'll laugh at you whenever people start identifying as lions over here. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's, it's not too far off. When you accept that you're nothing but an animal, you accept that I am whatever I want to be, this is, next, this is the next step. This is the next step. It's gotten so bad and America's went so far off the rails that in certain states, they're even putting litter boxes in elementary schools. So the little children who think they're a cat can use the bathroom in a litter box. You are the next generation for Kenya. Do not forget what I say tonight. It might seem funny to you, and it's kind of funny to me, to be honest. <laughs> but don't think it can't happen here. Because nobody saw this coming. Not even when gays were allowed to get married. Nobody saw this coming. But just as soon as gay marriage went through, then transgenderism, all this other stuff went through. And then before you know it, you have government-sanctioned public libraries having homosexuals dress up as women and demons and all kinds of things and reading children's stories to kids. They call it Drag Queen Story Hour. Could you imagine that? 
If this guy showed up in a public library in Kenya, they'd probably run him out. It's like, what are you doing here, dude? Like, come on, what do you dress like that for? It's not Halloween. <clears throat> but listen, these people are getting a lot of sympathy. I have people on my Facebook page defending these kind of guys right now. Saying, oh, we've had drag queens for forever. Who, who cares about this? It's just men that want to dress up as women. Let them do what they want to do. Well, listen, when I was an atheist, I lived with a guy that was a Satanist and a drag queen and a bisexual. Now, I was not bisexual, nor was I a Satanist, nor was I a drag queen. I would have been a very ugly drag queen. But, <clears throat> but I, what I'm saying is I know that culture. The people that used to come to my house when I was your age, I had a house um, near campus that was known as a party house. And don't act like there's, there's probably one of those around here, if not several, right? No, you guys are the Christian organization, so I guess you never go to those kind of things, do you? Well, the people in the Christian organizations back home used to come party with us all the time. That was a hypocritical thing. As a matter of fact, one of the guys that led worship was my drag queen roommate's boyfriend. True story. This was in 2006, 2007. And these people would come and party with us. You know what I found out when they'd party with me? About 2 o'clock in the morning, after everybody was done drinking and people were trying to sober up so they can drive home, these people would be crying, saying things like, the reason I am the way I am is because my uncle abused me when I was a kid. I can't feel satisfied in my life. Now, I wasn't a Christian. I was an atheist. But these people would just start venting to me. And further... My Satanist drag queen roommate was also in the art department. And the art department, the theater department, those are the types of departments that would attract those types of people. So we were kind of the hangout for those people. I bet I had more than 20 or 30 gay friends. And they were some of the most depressed people I've ever known. And after I became a Christian, I don't hardly get to talk to any of them anymore, except for Steve, my buddy Steve, who's a very interesting character. Um, you know, every time I go to my hometown where my college was always look up Steve and have lunch with him and talk to him and just try to encourage him and try to be a good witness to him because that's what Christians ought to be doing they're just marginalized they, they don't feel like they have a home anywhere they know deep down in their heart that this is not natural they know that they're not completely reprobate they know that so how do you talk to these people well I've got just a few minutes here um I wanted to introduce you, I mean, America's not all, you know, it's not all gay and lesbian and all this stuff. We do have these things called supermodels back home. Right, guys? Oh, uh, yeah. What do you think? It's actually a man. Yeah. Right? Sorry, guys. I just made you feel real uncomfortable. Didn't I? So, this is the first... Um, this is the first trans, transgender Sports Illustrated model in America. Yeah. So this is where we are. This is where we are. Makes you think, don't it? It's like, what is going on up there? All right, we're going to move on. So what I've learned since I've been in Kenya, um, the way I operate, you may not agree with the way I do things, but that's okay. I'm an American. You're not supposed to agree with me anyway. So, <clears throat> But you know what I do when I come into a city like this? And I'm not advocating you do this. I'm 39 years old and know where I am in the Lord, and I'm comfortable with this. But you know, I'm a musician, 
And as a musician in America, the primary place that you play at are bars and clubs and things like that. So I've spent many years in bars. I know how bars operate. I mean, I know the kind of people that come there. But if you want to know the ideas of what's going on in the culture, you go to a place like a bar. Then you talk to a group of people like you guys that are Christians that don't go to the bars. And you talk to as many different people groups as you can. If I find a Muslim... I talk to them about what do you think about this subject? What do you think? And so through that, you gauge this whole spectrum of what's going on. So my first night here in Nairobi, I found a cool little food court next to my flat. And um, after the food court was closing down, there was this like rooftop bar thing up here. There's just a few people there. So I'm like, I'm going to go up there. It's not real loud. Let's see what's going on. I start talking to these guys, and I asked them all two questions said, what do you think about the homosexual revolution thing going on in Kenya right now? And I hear, and I read this about your country before I got here, but I noticed it's pretty prevalent. About everybody I talk to answers the same way. Well, in Kenya, you know, we're kind of forward-thinking people, so it's kind of to each his own. We're, you know, as long as it's not hurting anybody, then, you know, let somebody be what they want to be and all of that. Then I ask them this question, and it always, it's almost always the same answer. And it's really baffled me because it's totally different than the United States. Totally different. Said so, so I know that Kenya is based upon a very strong family structure. You guys really value traditional family values. It's an honor-shame culture. I understand all those things. You don't want to shame the system. And, you've, and it's very honorable to have a wife and kids in Kenya. You all agree with that? Am I right? I'm right. Kind of. I know some of you guys are like, yeah, I don't know, I like being single. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm in college, lay off me. So, <laughs> no. They say, well, yeah, that's true. That's why most gay people in this, in this country um, are cheating on their spouse with another man. I said, you said what? <laughs> I said, no, what they'll do is they will, um, they'll have a family, and on the surface it all looks right, but then behind closed doors... They're having an affair with a man or something. And that's how homosexuality looks in, our, in Kenya right now. In America, that's very rare. That doesn't happen. Nobody thinks about that. Nobody thinks that way. Nobody talks about that. So what happens is you have, um, you have in Kenya now, if I'm understanding this right, as an outsider... You have a man who is married to a woman and during the day raising children and on the nights and weekends cheating on the wife and cheating on the kids, to be honest, too, and going and having an affair with a man. And perhaps the kids and the wife even know about it in some arrangements. And what kind of worldview are those kids going to have? What kind of idea of the family are those kids going to have? And I'm going to tell you something. Coming from the West, <clears throat> that sounds... That sounds crazy to me in one sense, but at the same time, if you really embrace a Darwinian um, social contract theory kind of ideology, that I think what's happening is, this is just my personal philosophy, I, don't, I haven't read this anywhere, but what it seems like is happening is the Western influence in Kenya is subconsciously causing these kinds of problems. Because ultimately that man is saying, my pleasure is more important than my family giving up the community of the family, only keeping it on the surface level as they go over here and not just commit the sin of homosexuality, but also committing the sin of adultery, committing the sin of lying, committing the sin of lust. I mean, it's just compounded. I mean, at least in America, most homosexual people, like they're committing homosexuality, they're not cheating on their wife and doing it. 
So as Christians, you've got to learn how to talk about these issues and talk about them charitably. Gosh, I am just about out of time. And I wish I had more time to talk about this stuff. And I'm just going to try to get through here and get all the way to the end of this scriptural thing. I had all these scriptures I wanted to get through, but we started late, and that's understandable. So let me get here. Yeah. Now, I'm going to give you this one scriptural passage, and then we're going to move it on into a Q&A section. Um, and I want to... Uh, just spend two minutes doing this and talk about a story with um, this boy in my hometown named Sean. He came up to me, and I live in a very small village of a hometown back in Kentucky before I moved to Houston, Texas, which is like the fourth biggest city in the nation. I went from a town of about a thousand people to a town of seven and a half million, so it was like a huge contrast. But in a little town where there's a thousand people, Everybody knows everybody's business. Anybody from a village here? Yeah, I guess it's probably the same way. Everybody knows everything about you, and it's kind of aggravating. You're like, I wish you'd stay out of my business. But, um, but yeah, so this kid, I thought he was very brave. When I was a pastor, he, uh, he looked me up. He was probably about 24, 25. He said, um, hello, pastor. I want you to know I'm gay, and I'd like to have lunch with you. I'm like, Okay. We'll have lunch. Where do you want to have lunch? So we set up a lunch date, and we went together and sat down, and we talked. And um, he said, you know, I go to this church over here, and they say God loves homosexuals, and it's perfectly okay to be gay and be a Christian. And I go to this place over here, and they're just telling me I'm going to hell, you know. So um, I like how you guys do this. You know, in America, they just yell at you. They're like, they're like you can use 10 minutes more before the Q&A. So, it's like you're getting into Scripture. This is the interesting part now. So um, we'll, go, we'll look at a few more passages too. So thank you for that. So Sean said, I want to know what you think. I was you know, into apologetics at that time. And if you're doing apologetics right, it should come across very compassionately. And I think that's what he saw in me. He saw somebody that would try to give him some understanding and wouldn't be mean about it. And I showed him, I said, well, he's like, I just want to know what the scriptures say about this, man. Just tell me what the Bible says. So I'm like, well, about the clearest passage you can look at is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And I read it to him. That's what's up here. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, adulterers passive homosexual partners, practicing homosexuals, Thieves, the greedy, drunkards, the verbally abusive, and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. I said, I don't think it gets any clearer than that. Some of you once lived that way, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that kid sat there. And I still tear up thinking about it because I could tell it, something just clicked. Like this guy was on the edge of deliverance. And he tears up in that public place. And he says, wow, do you mean to say to me, Pastor, that God took people like me, cleaned me up, and built the early church off them? I said, man, you need to become a preacher. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. You see what that is? 
Most Americans, when they do the stuff that you see, the junk that you see on YouTube that comes out of America, most of it's junk. Of these guys standing out in a street corner saying, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And they start screaming, you're going to hell and you're going to hell and you're going to hell. Well, guess what? Nobody listens to those people. And the only reason they're remotely famous on YouTube is because people laugh at them in America. Most of their views are coming from atheists saying, look how stupid these Christians are. Most of the best Christian speakers on this issue, you can't even hardly find them on YouTube because they're reasonable. They're speaking truth with love, and that's not clickbait. They're getting about a thousand views, and about, you know, a bunch of homeschool moms are buying their books. <laughs> but those are the kind of people I wanted to study under because I'm not interested in being the next famous YouTuber because I'm controversial. I'm interested in winning people to Jesus Christ. That's what I'm interested in. And you guys might be the biggest audience I speak in front of all summer, but I'm willing to pay thousands of dollars just to come over here and have one opportunity to stand here and say this to you. If there's one thing I can say to the Kenyan church right now is you better be prepared because your message has to be treated with love. There's reasons people follow after a homosexual lifestyle, and most of them are very unnatural. I've written papers upon papers, taken classes on this, studied it inside and out, psychology, psychiatry, the forbidden psychology, the forbidden. I mean, there's, there's all the reasonable stuff thrown out the window. All America wants to teach you is acceptance, acceptance, acceptance. That's how people get over it. But listen, that, doesn't fo that does not follow because these people are still committing suicide. 35% more likely to commit suicide than straight people with all the acceptance in the world. They've got much, many more rights than I do. As a straight white Christian man in America, I am enemy number one. I can't even talk about racism in public. I get called a bigot. I mean, that's where we are. But it's not helping anything. All these kids and their teachers patting them on the back and saying, oh, all right, Timothy, you want to be called Tanya now? That's okay. That's all right. That's fine. Timothy's still trying to take his life at 12 years old. These kids are getting reassignment surgery, and, and uh, you've got girls as young as 14 years old cutting off their breasts and becoming a man, only to reach 21 and say, you know what, I was a stupid teenager. I want to have kids, and now I can't. I want to kill myself. That's what tolerance really looks like. And I'm not being negative. I'm not trying to be negative about this. I'm just saying obviously Christians have the answer, but we have to know how to give the answer. So one of the things that, that gets said quite a bit, I'm trying to just move through some of this stuff, is Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. How do you answer that as an apologist? Well, this is what Jesus said. Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will live, leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So what's Jesus saying there? What is marriage? It's between a man and a woman. And furthermore, everything that is sexual outside of that marriage union is sinful. 
So when somebody says to you, and this is a very popular Western talking point, is any, just out of curiosity, has anybody said this to you yet? That Jesus never said anything about homosexuality? As I'm looking at my apologist friend back there. He's like, yeah, they said I'm, I'm sure it's going to get popular if it's not already. It's like, well, you know, Jesus never said anything about incest either, but what do you think about that? I mean, do you think Jesus condones incest? Do you think Jesus is okay with a brother and sister being married? I mean, at what point does common sense just go out the window on some of this stuff? I mean, no first century Jew, no first century Jew would ever think that homosexual unions are okay. I mean, that's clear. One last thing here. Jesus did say this. What comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, out of the human heart, come evil desires, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All these evils come from within and defile a person. You know what Jesus was looking to there? What he probably was thinking as a first century Jew is probably the Torah. Right? And what does Torah say about these issues? <clears throat> if a man has sexual intercourse with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood guilt is on themselves. If a man has sexual intercourse with a male as one has sexual intercourse with a woman, the two of them have committed an abomination. They must be put to death. The blood guilt is on themselves. You think Jesus believed the Torah? Or did he forget about that part? I think Jesus wrote the Torah through Moses, through the Holy Spirit. I think he knew exactly what he was talking about. So, you know, there's so much more, obviously, I could go through here. But um, I did want to say, there's like one thing here. I could, I could actually go back to Dr. Gagnon here. Dr. Gagnon said we would see these five things. Whoops, what did I do? Play from current slide. Thank you, PowerPoint. There we go. I don't know if you can read that very well. But this is from his book, um, Homosexuality, Two Views, Arguing Between the Liberal Church, which I can talk to more about. You know, there's a lot of churches that are embracing this now. Robert Gagnon was one of the people that was just trumpeting. This was in 2003 when he wrote this. He said, 20 years ago, Robert Gagnon, Ph.D. from Princeton in New Testament studies. He's a good friend of mine. He's a, a professor at my university, brilliant guy. Probably no better Greek scholar in this world on this issue. And if anybody wants to read his books and want to get the scriptural education, he's got a 600-page book on human homosexuality, like homosexuality and Christian belief. It is really amazing. And this is what I took from his smaller book, um, Homosexuality, Two Views, where he's arguing with an American Christian who's embracing homosexuality in the church, and he's arguing against it. This is what he said 20 years ago, that we would see these things in the church if current progress kept up and it was very prophetic he said we will see first a radical devaluation of the place of scripture in the life of the church check that happened secondly we'll see a radical devaluation of scripture's moral imperative of the place of holiness obedience and repentance check absolutely happened third ecclesiastical and civil marginalization persecution and even prosecution of those who oppose to oppose those who opposed homosexual practice as the moral equivalent of racists. So check, it's exactly what happened. And in Canada, they're already putting pastors in prison for this. You can't speak about homosexuality in the Canadian church anymore. Already happening. Fourth, 
<clears throat> coercive introduction of our youth into pattern of sexual behavior and belief that the united witness of Scripture deems immoral. So what he's saying there is, next thing they're going to do is they're going to target the youth. And they're going to say the Bible's wrong about this. That's exactly what progressive Christianity is doing right now in the West. Check. All of these things really started happening on the popular level just about five years ago. So he was ahead of the game on this. He said an increased incidence of homosexuality and bisexuality in the population leading to an increase in associated health and relational problems. Check. If he could have been one more, could have put one more word in that last one, been even more accurate, is psychological problems. Seen, definitely seen an increase of that. So I'm just going to conclude there. I wish I had more time. I'd, I'd planned for an hour, and I, I, didn't ha I did not have an hour. So um, we'll conclude there, and if anybody would like to stay afterwards, after the q and I'll be here. I mean, I've got nothing else to do but, but spend my time with you, and, and so I'd be glad to talk to you about even McDonald's, if you have questions about that. So, whatever. So, um, question. Okay. Questions? Yeah. Now, let me warn you guys. I've played drums for about 27 years of my life. I'm deaf. <laughs> so, you probably need to yell at me. So, <laughs> so if you could... Matter of fact, if you have, let's do it this way. If you have a question, could, would you feel comfortable just coming forward and then that way you could talk into the microphone and then we will, um, and then I can answer it that way. Only one question? Okay. What's your name? Cornelius. Cornelius. So what's your question? Um. So I've got two questions. Okay. Uh, the first question is there's this group of people whereby naturally uh, it's a special case. Uh, phenotypically they are male, but uh, genetically they are female. So um, when you find yourself in this situation, it poses a threat, a threat in, your, um, in your sexual choices. So as, as a believer, if you find yourself in this situation, what should you do? So what you're asking is if a person says to you, they might look like a male, but genetically they're female. Well, there's, a, there's an easy answer to this, and then there's a more tactful answer. Um, easy answer that I would, the easy answer that I would not use would be like, well, your biology isn't determined by your feelings and by like your underlying genetics because there's definitely a spectrum in that there are definitely men that are more prone to being artistic you know and things like that are more feminine in a sense and listen that's okay that's perfectly all right um what matters is what are you doing biologically and where do you identify in that and so sometimes the best thing you can say as a christian is what do you mean by genetically, you know, like try to get them to talk about that. It's like, do you go to the men's restroom or women's restroom? Because that's probably a bigger determining factor on whatever's going on internally. And yeah, so that would be, that would be how I would approach that. But I would also be clear that I would approach that in the course of at least a half hour conversation and not be blunt right off the bat with it because they're almost expecting that. You know, it's almost like witnessing to a Muslim 
I've done a lot of Islamic apologetics. Muslims are almost expecting you to fight and argue. And when you don't fight and argue with them, they're like, okay, so we're going to have to have a conversation. I wasn't ready for this. The mosque didn't prepare me for this one. <laughs> you know, so it's the same way with these, with these people. So what was your second question? Okay, thank you. My second question is, uh, I believe this agenda, it's uh, a culture from the West. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, in recent days we have seen uh, many influential companies like Netflix mm. are propelling and pushing this agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, big influential people like, uh, uh, sorry to use, uh, to mention their name, but uh, someone like Joe Biden, someone like Obama, yeah. they are behind this agenda. Oh, you're not going to offend me, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to work for those guys, they're crazy. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's already with us. Yeah. We, cannot, we cannot deny it. Mm -hmm. So, um, as Christians, as the church, which role, uh, what role should we play, considering that these people are very influential, whereby they can push their own agenda to completion? Well, let me tell you a secret about America. <laughs> in America, I don't know if it's like this in Kenya, politicians are very influential. But you know who else is influential? Is the church. In America, abortion was legalized in the 1970s by our politicians. And it took a long time for that to go off the books. But if it wasn't for Christians standing up for that, we were the only people that stood up for life in America. Nobody else cared. Nobody. And I don't know if you follow American politics, but abortion was made illegal this past year. Praise the Lord. Amen. So as Christians, <laughs> Kenya, first of all, you know that you realize that the I just finished writing an art, wrote an article about this over both things that you just said actually, it's not published so you guys are getting the preview. I don't know who I'm going to publish it with, maybe Gospel Coalition or somebody, but I'm, it's waiting on my laptop to be sent to a national publication. It says two things: the Kenyan Church is about to be influenced by the West. It's not insignificant that the very day that Jill Biden came to visit your country your Supreme Court passed that NGO law. That's not insignificant. Because that's part of Americans' foreign policy with Democrats. So know that. You are correct. But this should be encouraging. When you talk about church programs and denominations, like the Church of the Nazarene, the United Methodist Church, and some of the other mainline denominations that come from the West, you know what's kept them from going off the rails left wing? The African Church. And they say that all the time. They'll come back from a general assembly. There's one going on with the Church of the Nazarene right now in Indiana. And they'll say something along the lines of, my buddy told me this, he's a lifelong Nazarene. He said, if it was not for the African church, the Church of the Nazarene would have accepted gay marriage this year. You guys are keeping America sane in the churches right now. That's cool. And I thank you for that. Don't think that you don't have a world influence because you absolutely do. And so keep doing that. If you can keep America from allowing this kind of junk to trickle into our churches all the way on the other side of the planet, I think you can do it in your country too. I think you've got a very, very loud voice. So does that answer your question? Just keep being Christians. That's how you do that. Uh, my last question. Uh, what's your... Last question. Does anybody else have a question though? Yeah, okay. So if it, the next person, go ahead and line up, and we'll make this really quick. Make uh, so a quick what's question. your take on 
criminalizing LGBTQ? Oh, good question. What's my take on criminalizing LGBTQ? I don't think that's the right direction, and here's why. Because when you criminalize LGBTQ, it doesn't stop the sin. It only makes it more underhanded. It only makes it more corrupt. What happens is people in the LGBTQ community are going to commit these sins no matter what. I mean, they're even going to go to as big of extremes like in Uganda right now. What happened in Uganda? Um, they criminalize it and, well, they just send all the gay people to refugee camps and things like that and you know, send them out of the country. But really, is that helping that group of people? I mean, we have to think. I didn't get a good chance to go over this in, the, in my message. But we're all created in God's image. Gay, straight, black, white, Asian, doesn't matter. We're all created in God's image. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some sins are a little bit worse than others, maybe. Some sins are a little more public than others. But that doesn't mean these people are not redeemable. One of my very best friends was gay until he was 25 years old. He found Jesus Christ and he became straight and he walked away from his homosexual lifestyle. And he spent, he's 65 now and he's been all over the world lecturing to people about this, about this thing. There's a lot of hope. And I know that's just one story of many that I know. So yeah, criminalize it puts it underground. I think decriminalize it brings it out in the open. And so the next step is as Christians, now that it's getting decriminalized, now these people are out in the open. Now how do I talk to them? And how do I make the church look inviting without compromising my scriptural convictions? Does that make sense? You can't compromise scripture. It says what it says. But that doesn't mean you have to be harsh about it either. You can help them see that like, hey, there's actually hope in Jesus Christ over here. Will you lose friends? Maybe. Will these people never talk to you again? Maybe. But best case scenario, they accept the gospel and walk away from this and become a living testimony that God can redeem that sin too. And that's probably, I don't know, but is that rare in Kenya right now? I would imagine it probably is. You probably don't have a lot of people standing up in church saying, I used to be gay. Because it's such a cultural kind of maybe strange thing. Is that true? I don't know. I mean, I'm an American. I'm not a Kenyan. Would that be true? Probably not a whole lot of people saying I've repented from homosexuality. Or am I wrong? You guys are looking at me like I'm weird. I'm just I'm trying to, like, am I right or wrong about that? I'm right. Okay, see, I'm a student on this too. Like, I'm not up here saying I have all the answers. I'm trying to. The Kenyan context and American context is two different things. So I'm up here having a conversation, really, is the way I feel. So thank you. Thank you. Next question. Oh, a number. In, oh. Oh, you can, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's exactly how we do it back home, too. That's, except we use Discord. <laughs> uh, what's the difference between sex and gender? The difference between sex and gender? Gosh, that's a good question. That, that's a whole other lecture. Um, gender is seen as something that's in a spectrum, right? That you can have, <laughs> you have these people now that are, they can identify as anything. You know, they, like, they can say, I mean, they can say all kinds of, I'm trying to think of an example. For instance, there was a, the state of Oregon had a case about 10 years ago where there was a girls volleyball coach that was a man, and this was a, primary school, like little kids, 7th, 8th grade, um, and he 
So they found out that he was taking showers with the little girls. And he was a grown man, like, you know, old, grown-up man. And, he, and so the parents were very outraged about this. And so he goes to court, and his defense was, but, judge, I think I'm a woman. Well, guess who the courts ruled with? The man and not the families. That's gender. His sex was he was a man. His gender was whatever he felt like that day. And that's what you see a lot with transgenderism. Transgenderism has been, become so culturally accepted now that somebody will identify as a woman as long as they have a boyfriend. But if that boyfriend hurts their feelings and it's a bad breakup, they'll say, well, I identify as a man now. And then they will go and start dating another man who says that the man identifies as a woman. See what I'm saying? It's really confusing. So you'll have a male saying I'm a female dating a female saying that she's a male, and then they will say they're gay. And it's like, no, you're not. You're just, you're just very confused, and we probably need to talk to you about this. Um, how was your childhood? <laughs> so, um, and I'm not being... I'm not really joking about that. It's just that's where it is. So that's the difference between gender and sex. And it, I hope that wasn't too confusing. Believe me, it's um, these things change about every six months in America too. Like there's more things being added, and people are coming up with new ideas. It's just gosh. So next question. Oh yeah. Hello. I have to turn the thing on. There we go. So, um, Joy? Yep. You might want to scoot that way, Joy, because that will, that's about to go crazy. Okay. Go ahead, Joy. Yeah, what, whatever you'd like to, if it'll reach. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So, my question is, um, most of us have seen a video of a black man, I guess he's a black American, mm -hmm. talking about um, the issue on LGBTQ being introduced to Africa as a birth control pill. As a what? Birth control. Birth control? Yes. Hmm. Okay. So what's your take on that? Um, something else. I wanted to know from your research and since you're from US, if I'm not wrong, <laughs> um, most people of that have been coming out, especially the trans community the transgender people uh -huh. are complaining of the effects of the hormone therapy and mm. uh, all those shenanigans. Mm -hmm. So my question is, <laughs> um, before they're done for everything, the procedures, the hormone therapy and everything, they're not told about the effects or are they hidden? Cause when most of them were complaining, there was this woman who was complaining that every six months she gets, uh, she, she has a trans, trans man. <laughs> you don't know, trans woman. Yeah, woman translated to hormone, man. Hormone replacement. Yes. Yeah, so uh, underwent the hormone replacement mm -hmm. and the surgeries. Mm -hmm. But now she complains of having infections every three months. Like it's guaranteed. Yeah. She has infections every three months. I just saw a video or a, an article the other day where a woman said that she had to do that every day now or she'll die. So, so my question is, uh, they're not warned 
or the government does that we without telling them the the effects the hospitals and everything and are the facilities are they not sued for doing that or are they not being well, held to account well they should be and they're starting to be but this is what happens in america <clears throat> is that when something gets politicized it becomes polarized racism had for the most part from you know i was raised in the 80s 90s 2010s went to college um but then after the george george floyd riots and black lives matter movement and all of those things um racism has become a thing again before that it really had almost effectively went away and by the way most of the music that i play is like r&b jazz Stevie Wonder, James Brown, and America's heavily indebted to African influence. But what happened was one political party picked up the idea of the Black Lives Matter movement and it quickly went from Black Lives Matter to Black Lives Matter as long as you agree with this movement and if you don't agree with this movement you're a racist even if you're black. <laughs> and so those people are called, those people are called um, Uncle Tom conservatives now. So even that movement's turned against its own people that think differently because it's so polarizing to talk about. Same thing with LBGTQ. With LBGTQ, one side of the aisle picked that up, and so once that happens, then it becomes so culturally charged that anybody who talks about it, there's no conversation. You're either a bigot or not. You're either a racist or not. If you don't agree with Black Lives Matter, well, you must be racist. It's like, I don't agree with Black Lives Matter because of the Marxist stuff underneath it. I don't agree with Black Lives Matter because of the, the way that it characterized most of the United States whenever it came out. And I know she didn't ask this question. I'm just using that as an example that you may be more familiar with um, from the American context. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just saying there's more to that than meets the eye. If you don't believe me, look up their statement of faith. Their state, they had a statement of beliefs that they quickly took down off the internet, but UCLA actually saved it as a PDF document. And they were outspoken about their communist roots. And then they had about four laws in there that talked about the protection of transgender, lesbian, and especially lesbian people. Not so much men, but gay women. And guess what? It was ran by two gay women. We know that now. But nobody thought about that. Why? Because political people picked it up. Also, same thing with gay stuff. To challenge a doctor that's doing gender reassignment surgery, who's challenging that guy? These bunch of bigots over here that don't want our kids to be happy? And that's exactly what it looks like. And that's insanity. So thankfully, I think Great Britain is a little bit smarter than we are on these kind of issues because their biggest gender reassignment hospital got shut down since last year because of all the problems that it was causing. And what you're seeing now, even in America, is that this thing was going up and up and up and up, but now it's kind of like planing off and starting to become unpopular. There's even a civil war going on between the gay population and the transgender population that nobody talks about. And it looks like this. You've got a big group of gay people in America that say, I'm born this way, and then you've got all these transgender people that say, I feel like I'm this way. And so the people are saying, wait a minute, we've been fighting for gay rights for 50 years saying that I'm born this way. Now you're coming up here and messing up everything saying you feel this way. 
no, you're not really a gay person. You're a poser, <laughs> you know. And um, like my friend Steve, my gay friend Steve, when he spoke against homosexuality, homosexual, there was a, there was a case. This is a good point, and then I'll close this question. Good point right here. My friend Steve that I go and eat lunch with, he's one of those that believes he's born this way. He's almost 40 years old now. He's been gay his whole life. He wears pink shirts. He talks like this. He's really cool. <laughs> like this fun guy to talk to. You know, very feminine guy. So there was a local official that said that she didn't agree with gay marriage. And gay people from all over the United States came down on that town and started protesting against her. And Steve was like, wait a minute. In America, we're supposed to have freedom of speech. We're supposed to have rights. Like, this woman has every bit right to disagree. You know what happened? All of his gay friends turned on him and threatened to kill him. Threatened to kill him. Not just disagree with him, but threatened to kill him. You know what Steve says? Steve says, I am tired of the liberal left making my lifestyle a political talking point. Wow. So I thought America was pro-gay rights. No. Just as long as you believe with their version of it. If not, you're a mortal enemy. I thought America believed that black lives matter. Well, as a Christian, I believe, of course, black lives matter. And racism has to go away. And that's very unbiblical. But if I don't believe in their certain version of it, then I'm a racist. See how that works? It's very scary. Next thing that happens is, you know, it's several years down the road, I'm sure. But we've seen just in the gay rights movement, it's like a ticking time bomb. Cultural revolution can happen overnight. You know, who knows who the next enemy is? That's kind of the way Americans feel right now. We don't know. You know, we don't know. So, yeah, next question. over here um, my question is whatever strategies that you talked about and what's happening in the United States mm -hmm. it's mostly curated so uh, for African context or Kenyan context per se it's kind of th they're trying to introduce it or they're trying to lobby for this thing to be to go global what 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 are the preventive measures that can be done especially by the Christian context, besides political things? Well, it's funny how you just ended that. <clears throat> Colossians says in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, pay attention to those scriptures, 15 through 21. There's two words that are used five times in the, in the context of those six scriptures. Christ is in all things, through all things, above all things. All things were created through Him. And so, <clears throat> you might say, and this was actually, it answers your question. Um, you might say, what can we do as Christians beside poli besides politics? Well, you guys are going to be college-educated people. If you really want to see cultural change, you need Christians to have a voice in everything, including politics, including the Supreme Court. How did abortion get overturned in America? The Supreme Court got packed with Christians all of a sudden. Five Christians, I think, out of, out of eight judges or something. So that got overturned. So, yeah, I would say that, get involved, um, guard against it coming in, and two, 
Now that people can be out in the open about their sexuality, don't push them away. In the Christian context, don't push them away. Invite them into your home. Have dinner with them. Talk to them about their life experience. Hear them out. Find the root of their sexuality. You know, 80%, I think I mentioned this earlier, 80% of American, they surveyed a group of, I think it was 5,000 different homosexual people. 80% of them had been molested before the age of 14. That says there's an underlying issue to that, right? The issue that they're not trying to talk about. And what happens psychologically when that happens is you're trying to normalize a childhood experience. And that's... I mean, you can, look at the, you can look at the psychology. I mean, that's not, that one's not been banned. I mean, that, they have embraced that. And you see that even one of the... Ne- and it got shot down very quick. But the next step for the gay agenda in the United States was to legalize pedophilia. They tried to push that into the... Const- like, they tried to push that in front of the, state, the House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives were like, no, we're not ready for that. <clears throat> Why is that? Because these older homosexual people see them being sexually abused as a child as a positive thing. It's sad, isn't it? Hopefully, that gives you a heart of compassion to say like, man, these people, they, and I'm not saying this in a negative sense, but these people really do need Jesus. They're trying to fill a void in their life that is so unnatural, that is so out there. And it could have been because they were sinned against. But that doesn't excuse their sin. That doesn't excuse their sin. You know? Just the same as somebody who grew up in the household with a father who was a liar. That person's going to have a greater tendency to lie. Right? But they need the gospel too. Or say their father was a drunkard. They're going to have a greater propensity to be an alcoholic. That person needs the gospel too. So we do need to recognize those things, but we also need to not make the mistake that a lot of liberal churches are doing in America and just excusing them and saying, well, it's all okay. We understand your story. So you just come along and we'll hold hands and sing around the campfire together. You know, it's like, that's not helping anybody. So yeah, hope that that answered your question. Okay. Yep. Okay, got to wrap it up. That's sad. I love, I love talking to you guys. Thank you for hearing me out. And listen, if I've said anything tonight that is not correct, notice in my introduction that nobody called me an expert, and I don't ever want to claim to be an expert. Um, I'm very much interested in the cultural context of, of Kenya. And like I said, I'm about to publish an article on this. I'd really love to hear your thoughts. If anything I've said is like, listen, what you said up there, that would never work here, and here's why. I'm like, oh, good, tell me. I'd like to know. So you have freedom to come and say, like, hey, I know you're a guest speaker, but listen, when you said this right here, don't ever say that in Kenya again. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfectly okay. Um, Because you're you're the first audience I'm talking to in Kenya. I'm talking to two or three more. I'm going to be on a TV program on Sunday. I'd rather not look like a fool. <laughs> so so um, you guys are welcome to come talk to me. Or if there's something that says, like, you need to say this more, that would be great, too. Um, just in closing, thank you for staying half hour longer than, um, than what was expected. And 
Thank you for being patient with us as we were late. And thank you for nearly pack, packing out this lecture hall. And if I could do one more thing while I have your attention, I'm going to do something very Western and take a selfie with you guys in the background. So, didn't see that coming. You thought I was going to say prayer, didn't you? <laughs> uh, so, it's because you guys are my first. I'm a, now, with Rochelle Christie, we are apologists to the college campus. You guys are my first college campus, and definitely not my last, that I've spoken to in Africa. So thank you for being my first audience, and I want to keep this memory forever if I could. So uh, can I get everybody? Maybe if I go over here. That's almost, gosh, this place is huge. Okay, ready? Wave if you want to. Don't look like a bunch of statues. You guys look so <laughs> bored. Okay, you ready? One, two. Y'all aren't waving. What's wrong with you all? Are you all that tired, really? Make this look interesting. Americans are going to be seeing this, hundreds of them. All right, ready? One, two, three. Yay. I think somebody literally yawned while I was doing that. Thank you. So let me close this with a word of prayer. I'll let you go get back to your studies if you'd like to hang out for a while. Uh, we have nothing but time to stand up here and and sit around here or go somewhere on campus or find a restaurant somewhere and talk. I'm, I'm pretty fat, so I can eat any time I want to. That's good. So let's pray. <laughs> I'll let you calm down. Heavenly Father, we thank you for truth that sets the hearts free. We thank you, Lord, for your, your help in here tonight. Thank you for getting me here safely. Thank you, Lord, for this student group of Christians that really care about these issues that matter to you and are close to your heart. Help us to see, Lord, that there is hope. There is hope for the homosexual. There is hope for Kenya and this budding sexual revolution that's, that's happening right now. We want to pray, Lord, that you would come against it in Jesus' name. And that, Lord, help us to recognize this is a spiritual battle. And that, Lord, these ideas <clears throat> are are satanic, they're divisive, and Lord, Satan would love nothing more than for us to hate our neighbors. But Jesus, you said to love our neighbor as ourself, and help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be filled with your Holy Spirit and speak life into those who need it most. Help us to be a catalyst of change here in Kenya. And help, help us, Lord, um, to have a global vision to see, and I'm sure everybody in this room is keenly aware that, Lord, Kenya has a lot of influence on the rest of Africa and the world. And so I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen us, empower us, and help us to walk humbly before you, filled with your spirit, ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us, with gentleness, meekness, and with fear. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your precious and holy name that I pray. Amen. Thank you.